0: take a seat. I want to ask you a question. Here's my question for you. Do you know why? Do you know why you go about your day in, day out, Monday through Friday, Saturday and Sunday daily existence? Do you know why you're doing it all? Uh, one of my favorite uh, authors, his name is David Foster Wallace. He's not a Christian, but he's widely considered to be one of the greatest English writers of the last 50 years. And a few years back, he gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College. And during that commencement speech, he, he told a little parable. And I, and I want to start off tonight with his parable uh, because it relates to my question. Here's how it goes. There's, there's two fish. There they are. There's two fish, and they are swimming down a stream together, two young fish. And coming upstream, swimming right past them is this old, wizened fish. And he looks at them, and he says, hey, boys, how's the water? And they kind of give him a strange look, and they kind of just keep swimming past him until they're a ways past him. And finally, one young fish looks at the other young fish, and he says, what the hell is water? Oh my gosh, he calls the Veritas. That's how the parable goes. I'm, I'm quoting him. What the heck was water? Okay, there you go. We can get the right. No, he says, what the heck is water? And isn't it true that just like a fish could spend its entire life swimming through water, And be totally oblivious to it. Isn't it true that that sometimes the most obvious, the most important, the most uh, meaningful realities in our lives are often the hardest ones to see and the hardest ones to talk about? And if it's true that a fish could easily spend his whole life in water and yet miss it, isn't it also true that we can go through our day in, day out, Monday through Sunday, Saturday, you know, all of our activities. And never stop. And see why. Why? Why are we doing all of this stuff? Let me get more concrete. Let's talk about an actual day in college. This was my kind of average day in college when I was in college. Uh, I, I would wake up, my alarm would go off at 8 a.m. I'd snooze it until 8:30. And so as a result, I, I wouldn't have time to eat or take a shower. You know, it's inevitable. Say hi to the roommate, take a quick swig of coffee, get on my bike. Get out to take, get lock up the bike, go into the lecture, listen to the lecture, get back on my bike, go to Ellis, study in Ellis, drive, drive my bike, ride my bike, back home, eat lunch really quick, and then guess what i 'm going to go back to class, going to be in a language class, maybe, and then i 'm going to go to the gym i 'm going to exercise i 'm going to come back home maybe i 'll finally take a shower, man, I needed a shower i didn 't take them enough in college that 's true. Of some of you. I take my shower, I, I eat my dinner, I go visit my girlfriend, come back home. Maybe I'd pop open a, a beer, I'd watch some Hulu, and then I'd go to sleep, and then I'd start it all over again. That was my average day in college. And I think if that old fish came up to me and he said, Hey, how's the water? I think I would have said, well, what's, what's water? This is, this is just what I do, this is just what everybody does. What are you talking about? What about you? What's your Monday through Sunday look like? Do you have a real reason for why you're just going, 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 going? Do you see the water that you're swimming in? Or is it invisible? You're just kind of oblivious to it. So here's the reality. Our hearts are like compasses. Our hearts are like compasses, and that compass in our heart, it directs, it points our actions, it points our thoughts, it points the direction of our lives in a certain direction, right? And it points it towards our deepest desires, towards our deepest loves, towards our conception of the good life. That's what that little compass in our heart is doing. It's throwing us in that direction, and One author that I really like, he calls this whole complex, the thing we love the most, the thing we desire the most, our idea of the good life, he calls that our vision of the kingdom. He calls that our vision of the kingdom. and He says that your heart has a compass and it's pointing you towards whatever your vision of the kingdom is, even if you don't know what it is, even if it's subconscious, it's pointing you towards your vision of the kingdom. You see, that vision of the kingdom Whether or not we're aware of it, whether or not we see it, whether or not we're conscious of it, that's our why. That's the water that we're swimming in. That's why we get up. That's why we go, 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 repeat. So again, just ask yourself the question, how's the water? Do you see it? Do you know which vision of the kingdom you're living for? Your deepest loves, your deepest desires, your conception of the good life? Back in January of 1914, just off the coast of Virginia, a thick fog was hanging over the ocean. And two boats, they're in the ocean off the coast at the exact same time, the Monroe and the Nantucket. Those are drawings of the two ships. And they're sharing the water in this thick fog, but neither one knows that the other one is there. And as a result, these two ships, they crashed into each other that night and 41 sailors died in the accident. It's after the fact, the two captains, they actually ended up living. And so they were both put on trial to see whose fault this was. And it was a big case The New York Times was following it. And this is what the New York Times wrote. They said that the captain, the master of the Monroe, He navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. He said that the instrument was sufficiently true to run the ship and that it was the custom of the masters in the coastwide trade to use such compasses. Catch this. His steering compass had never once been adjusted. You see, this guy, he thought, my compass, it's good enough. I know it's not perfect, but it's, it's good enough. But it wasn't good enough, was it? He, he never paid attention to it. He never adjusted it. And, and if he had had a rightly calibrated compass, he wouldn't have got it into the Nantucket shipping lane and the whole disaster could have been avoided. I'm afraid that sometimes in our lives, we're like the master of the Monroe. We haven't paid a lot of attention to, to the compass in our hearts. We're not really sure which vision of the kingdom we're living for, we're pointed towards. But we think, you know what? Yeah, I know, but it's good enough, right? I mean, we look around at our friends. We say, hey, like, I kind of look like them. We're kind of doing the same thing. I mean, it's good enough. But the truth is that we're like the fish swimming in the water, and we don't see the water. And as a result, we allow societal pressures to, to, to calibrate that little compass in our heart. We allow our cultural moment to shape our vision of the kingdom, So how's the water? Are you actually conscious of that compass in your heart? Do you know which vision of the kingdom you're actually living for today? Let me ask a different question. Are you sure? Are you positive? Are you absolutely certain that that little compass in your heart is pointing you in a direction that's not gonna end in a shipwreck? Are you sure? For the last few weeks at Veritas, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark and we've been looking specifically at how Mark presents Jesus as a king, as a king who wants to challenge us, as a king who wants to change us and transform us. And over the next few weeks, we're going to transition and we're going to start looking at King Jesus' central message. And this was his central message the kingdom of God is near. And this is what we're going to see today. We're going to see that Jesus, he wants to calibrate the compass that's in our heart so that it points to his vision of the kingdom. So that our deepest desires, our deepest loves, our conception of the good life is pointing towards his kingdom. In Mark 1, 14 to 15, we read this. After John the Baptist was put into prison... Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news or the gospel of God. Okay, so what's the gospel according to Jesus? Here's the gospel according to Jesus. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. You see, Jesus came proclaiming a vision of the kingdom, a vision of the good life. But before we can talk about what the kingdom is, that's what we're gonna be doing for the next few weeks anyways. Before we can talk about what it is, we need to ask this question first. What is it not? What is the kingdom not? Or put a little different way, we can think about it like this. What distinguishes Jesus's kingdom from every other kingdom out there? What's the difference between Jesus's kingdom and every other kingdom that's out there in the world? And here's the main difference. It's this. Jesus' kingdom is not a man-made religious construct. It's not a man-made religious construct. That's a mouthful. It sounds kind of heady. Let's, let's actually talk about what that means, okay? Back in Jesus' day, there was a group of people called the Pharisees. And maybe you've heard about the Pharisees. Sometimes these guys get a little bit of a bad rap. In their day, they were kind of the most well-respected upstanding members of their society. A Pharisee was the guy who, if you were a kid, you would think, man, someday I want to grow up and be like that guy. And like most Jews, the Pharisees, they were awaiting the day when God's kingdom would arrive. The question though was how? How would God's kingdom get here? And the Pharisees said that they had the answer. They knew how it was going to happen. They said that God's kingdom would come through religious purity, through religious rituals. If if, if the people were just pure enough, if they were just moral enough, then, then the kingdom would come. And so as a result, they started creating all these rules and rituals, things you can do on your day of rest, things you can't do on your day of rest. They were incredibly morally rigorous. You see, that was their vision of the kingdom, that kind of perfect purity. That was their why. That was the water that they were swimming in that was shaping their day in, day out realities. But Jesus, he had, at least to them, this really annoying habit of just disregarding all of their man-made rules. You see, Jesus, he had this habit of putting people before religious rituals. He had this habit of eating with prostitutes. He took the people who they thought were the scum of the earth and he invited them into his inner circle. Here's the point. The essence of man-made religion is this we must prove ourselves worthy to God, right? That's the essence of all man-made religion. It's about proving ourselves worthy to God or to someone or to something. But the essence of Jesus' kingdom is precisely the the opposite. It's that God graciously makes unworthy people worthy. That's the center of Jesus' kingdom. That's why Jesus said this. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick They're the ones who need a doctor. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is exactly what distinguishes Jesus' kingdom from every other kingdom that's out there in the world. You see, all man made visions of the kingdom, all man, all man made conceptions of the good life, they're they're all, every single one of them, inherently religious. They're all about proving your worth to someone or something. You see, in the kind of more traditional religions, you're proving your worth to God, right? Maybe it's the seven pillars of Islam or the four noble truths of Buddhism. But get this, even the most secular person is very religious. Yeah, they're not trying to prove their worth to God. They're not trying to do that. But they are, they are religious because they're trying to prove their worth to someone. They're trying to prove their value to something. I'll illustrate it like this. George Mallory He is widely considered to be the first person to peak Mount Everest. And back in the 1920s, and still to this day, it was an incredibly, incredibly dangerous feat. It had been attempted many times before him and failed many times before him. People had lost their lives. They'd lost limbs. And yet, and yet, he wanted to risk his life. He wanted to risk his limbs And so he did it. He made it to the top of the mountain. And of course, when someone does something incredible like this, the question you always wanna ask them is why? What drove you to climb that mountain? Why did you do it? Well, in public, his answer was always this. He'd say, because it was there. Why'd you do it? It's there, I had to do it. That's the answer. But in a personal, private note to his wife, I think he gave the real answer. This is what he wrote to her. He said, you must know That the spur to do my best is you and you again. I want more than anything to prove worthy of you. Just let that last line sink in. Why did you climb Everest? I wanted to prove worthy. I wanted to prove worthy of my wife. I wanted to prove worthy of the public's attention. I wanted to prove worthy of my family and everything else. Somewhere deep down in George Mallory's heart, he had this profound insecurity. And in some way, climbing Everest, climbing that mountain, it was a religious act that proved his worth. It proved his worth. What's your Everest? Where deep in your heart do you find yourself saying, If I could just peak that, if I could just be that, if I could just do that, then, then, then I'd be worthwhile. Maybe for some of us in in this room, it's the classic kind of traditional religious answer. If I can just be morally perfect, if I can be at least close to morally perfect, then, if I can climb that mountain, then I'd be worthwhile, if I had to guess, most of us in this room are probably far more tempted to give the kind of secular religious answers, right? I must be pretty to be worthwhile. I must be rich to be worthwhile. I must be successful to be worthwhile. I must be well-liked. I must be respected. I must be the smartest person. I must be funny. I must be comfortable. These are the mountains that we're tempted to climb because we think if I can just get to the top of that, then I would prove it. I would prove that I'm worth it. But here's the reality at some point, you will fall short of your moral standards. At some point, you're gonna get old. You're gonna lose your looks. At some point, you're not gonna have the high self-esteem that you wanna have. At some point, you're going to be surpassed by someone else in wealth. You'll lose your money in a stock market crash. At some point, you'll be the least intelligent person in the room. At some point, you won't be the most respected. You won't be the most well-liked. You'll get passed up for the promotion. At some point, your comfort will disappear into sickness and into suffering. At some point it's all gonna fall apart. And the question is this, when we fail to peak our own mountain, the mountain that we wanna climb, when we fall short of our own vision of the kingdom, when the water that we've just been swimming in our whole lives begins to suffocate us, well, what's next? What's next? Do you know that George Mallory, the guy who peaked Everest, do you know where he died? He died not too long of that on Mount Everest. See, the mountain that he thought would prove his worth ultimately ate him. It ultimately killed him. And that's exactly what happens to all of us. You will fail the mountain and the mountain will fail you. And at some point, if we don't change our heart's deepest desire, it leads us to tailspin, into misery, depression, anxiety, fear, shame, loneliness, emptiness, ambivalence, and even into self-destruction. (laughs) the reason why I I wanna give this talk to you, I've been doing campus ministry now for for six years. I just can't tell you how many times I've seen this happen in the lives of college students. I remember meeting with a guy and he thought that if he just fit in, if he was kind of the guy, the cool guy, if he just fit in, find his crowd, then he'd be worthwhile. That was his vision of the kingdom. That was his idea of the good life, right? And it drove all of his choices. It was why he would never be able to say no to friends. He'd always go out to the parties. He'd always end up hooking up. He, didn't, he wanted to be the guy, right? He didn't want to be that lame Christian who's sitting it out, right? But every night, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., he'd be sitting in his room. He told me every single time he'd be sitting in his room, hammered out of his mind, crying. Crying, because... He felt like a fake because he felt so alone and depressed. Maybe you've been there at some point. Maybe you've failed to climb the mountain you thought you were going to climb. Maybe the mountains failed you. I, I knew a girl once and she thought if I'm pretty and if I'm kind of morally upright, if I'm morally perfect, then I'll be worthwhile. That was her mountain. But when a dark secret came out, when it came out that she had done something that was really wrong, and everybody knew about it, it it wrecked her. The mountain failed her. She tail spun into depression and anxiety, and it was heartbreaking to watch her life just start to self-destruct. You see, the kingdoms of the world, they all say this. If you do this... Then, then you'll prove worthy. Buy into this vision and you'll be filled. But they all fail us ultimately. But you see, Jesus' kingdom, it's not a mountain for us to climb. It's the exact opposite. In fact, it's precisely when you're at your lowest point. It's when you're at your bottom moment. That's when you find a doorway into Jesus' kingdom. You say, you may be thinking right now, I've done too much wrong. I'm I'm too dirty. You don't get it. I, I've messed up too much. God's already given me plenty of chances. I've lost all hope. He's lost all hope in me. But you gotta realize this: Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom where you're proving your worth. It doesn't matter what you've done. It's not a kingdom where you prove yourself. The doorway to Jesus' kingdom is this: it's his own words. He says, Your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus' kingdom isn't about man-made worth, it's about God-made forgiveness. Jesus' kingdom is not a place where we make ourselves worthwhile, but where he himself, he bestows upon us definitive, unbreakable, ever-sized worth upon us. He looks upon us and he says, you, you are my child. I love you. I chose you. I've given you infinite worth. You need to prove nothing to me because I've already washed you clean. I've already forgiven you. I've set my delight and my joy on you. His vision of the kingdom, not where we're proving ourselves, but where we're receiving God's unmerited free love. It's the only vision. It's the only vision that will not shipwreck our lives. It's the only mountain that won't fail you because it's not a mountain. I know that there's some of us who are here tonight, probably a lot of us, actually. If you could come up and talk to me afterwards, you'd say this. You'd say, I like what you're saying, but I feel stuck. I don't know any other word for it. I just feel stuck right now. And everything you're saying, it makes sense on Sunday mornings. It makes sense on Tuesday nights. But then when I'm in my apartment with my friends, when I'm going to classes, when I'm trying to decide what I'm going to do in the evening, all this Jesus stuff, it just kind of evaporates. It just kind of disappears and all of a sudden I find myself living for the kingdoms of the world, still trying to prove my worth, living for the same pleasures, the same goals, the same, the same, the same. And so the question you wanna know, this is the question you wish you could just get answered. How do I get my heart's compass recalibrated? How do I get the direction of my heart's desires to change from wanting that kingdom to wanting the kingdom of Jesus. How does that happen? Well, the answer I'm gonna give you might not be the most interesting or exciting or mind-blowing answer, but it's the answer that Jesus gives us. And I think if we get our minds around it, it has the power to, to radically change us. This is what Jesus says you have to do. He says, repent and believe in the good news. It says, repent and believe in the good news. Two different things there, repent. Well, that just means to turn, right? If you're headed north, head south. If you're headed east, head west. That's that's what repentance is, it's turning. And can I suggest this to you? When Jesus calls us to repent, a lot of times we think he's like saying like one big act of grand repentance. I repented, now I'm in. But I think what Jesus really means is not repenting one time, but repenting over and over and over again. And here's why. Our heart's default is to love that kingdom. Our heart's hearts default is to live for the kingdoms of the world. And that's why we have to constantly turn. Every morning, we have to turn back. Every afternoon, we have to turn back. Every evening, we have to turn back. It's not just saying sorry for the wrong things I've done. It's saying, God, change my heart so that my loyalties aren't towards that kingdom, but so that my loyalties are towards your kingdom. Change my heart, turn my heart so that I don't want that kingdom, but so that I start to desire your kingdom. That's something his spirit can do inside of you through prayer. Jesus gives us a second step. If you feel stuck, this is the second step. He says, believe in the good news. Okay, so yet again, what does that mean? What does it mean to believe in the good news? Well, the good news, that implies history. News implies a news story, right? And so I think that believing in the good news means believing God's story, it means allowing his story to become our story. In one of my favorite movies, it's about, there's a lot of characters in it, but, but, but there's these kind of two everyday guys, right? And they end up, in the end, going on this mission to save the world. And, and one guy says to the other guy at one point, he looks at him and he says, it's crazy. It, it's like we've become the heroes and the characters and the old myths and the old stories that our parents told us it's like we're in it it's like we're living in the story and I think that's kind of like what it's like to believe the good news it's becoming a character in God's kingdom story it's letting his story begin to narrate our lives it's letting his story begin to define our vision of the kingdom begin to define our loves our dreams our desires our idea of what the good life really looks like so practically how do you do this How do you do this? Yet again, I'm not gonna say anything mind-blowing. Throughout the ages, Christians have done this through spiritual disciplines, all right? And spiritual disciplines, they're not about us doing something for God or us having this amazing experience. Actually, they're about God doing something to us. They're about God graciously reshaping, re-narrating, giving us a new story, right? So what are those spiritual disciplines? Well, that's why we come on Tuesday nights, actually. This, This is a spiritual discipline, coming to worship. So that as we sing of the Father's love here and we get the idea of his love and the story of his love in our lives and we get the worth that he's given us and that becomes our story, we don't have to look to those mountains to be our worth anymore. This is why we read our Bible. This is why we pray. So that as we're reading in the scripture about the failures of humanity, the failures of Israel, the failures of the disciples, we let that become our story. It teaches us to confess our failures. It teaches us to confess the ways that we're not living for God's kingdom. This is why we do the spiritual discipline of Christian community, things like small group, things like going on fall retreat. Because as when we, as a group, as we discuss God's mission in the world, his mission to spread his kingdom of love, justice, and mercy, his mission to make a home for for people who feel like they don't have a home. That story becomes our story. As we discuss it, then we become hospitable. We start trying to make a home for other people. We start pursuing love, justice, and mercy. That's why we go to church on Sunday mornings. So as we sing songs about our future, the day when Jesus will restore everything, make a new earth, give us resurrected bodies, we'll be with him. As that story becomes our future, as it becomes our story, that future promise It outweighs all the promises of the bars. It outweighs all the promises of of religious self-righteousness. It outweighs all the promises that all the mountains can do because we know where we're going. We know that we have a greater hope. I'm gonna invite the music team back up. And as they come up, I wanna say this. What does it look like for you to turn your loyalties What does it look like for you to believe in the good news, to let his story become your story, to let his past become your past, his present become your present? What would it look like for you to see yourself both in the glories of the Bible and in the ugliness of the Bible, to believe it, to let it shape you, to let it calibrate the compass of your heart, to let his story become the water that you're swimming in in your day in, day out, everyday existence? what would that look like for you? I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna sing. Heavenly Father, uh, the truth is that we so often, we so often find ourselves being loyal to the millions of kingdoms out in the world. We're trying to prove our worth to our friends. We're trying to prove our worth to our parents. We're trying to prove our worth to the watching world. But your kingdom's not a kingdom where we prove our worth. That's not the vision of the kingdom that Jesus came to give us. Your kingdom is a kingdom where you accept the unworthy, where you accept the sick and the sinner. And so I pray that you would turn our hearts' loyalties to that kingdom. I pray that you would make that kingdom's story, the story of how you made everything good, how we broke it, but how you fixed it. You'd make that story our story, that you'd make our future hope of, the return of our King on earth, that you'd make that our hope and that it would outweigh all the promises of the world. God, we want your story to be our story. We want our loyalties to be for your kingdom and your kingdom alone. Only you can do this. It's we pray. Amen.